Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks. If you're new to our show, I'm Lori LeBay, the host, and I created Alzheimer's Speaks because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years. And if you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring My Adore, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Alzheimer's Speaks is really about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal is to raise all voices, big and small, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates, researchers, and more. And so um, we're always looking for guests. Maybe you could be our next guest because we, again, we want to hear from people all around the world at all levels. I also have to always thank our listeners because of your loyalty, your likes, your clicks, your shares have been amazing and have really pushed out our content far and wide, much further and wider than I would have ever, ever imagined. So thank you for those likes, clicks, and shares on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and and Lord knows who else. Uh, There's so, so many social media platforms out there. Our goal is to really build a sense of community and collaboration and comfort. So when People need that information when they're ready to grab it. It's there. So you are really helping us fight this battle against dementia by sharing this information and making people feel like it's okay to grab a hold of it when they're ready. I also want to give a couple of shout outs uh, to a few organizations. One is um, the Memory Cafe Directory. If you are feeling isolated and alone, which many people are through this COVID, many of the memory cafes, which are groups for people with dementia and their care partners, no longer meet in person, but there are several um, around the country that are meeting virtually and anybody is welcome. And you can find those by going to memorycafedirectory.com, memorycafedirectory.com. And then um, I also want to let you know some of the other things that we do. Uh, We have a blog. We have a YouTube channel. We also um, do a thing called Dementia Quick Tips, which are things I wish someone would have told me when I was on the journey with my own mother. And um, we push those out there, just short little video clips. And then Dementia Chats, which is an hour-long episode where I facilitate a conversation with the true experts, those living with the disease. Now, on July um, 16th, which is a Thursday, from 1 to 2.30, I'm going to be uh, doing a virtual uh, webinar for Artists Senior Living of Minnesota in Woodbury. 
and it's about understanding and evaluating the benefits of memory care for your family. And you can register by going uh, by calling 612 200 at 612 200 0506, or you can go to the artistway.com forward slash Woodbury events. So with no further ado, it's time to introduce you to our wonderful guest today. I am really excited that we have Phyllis Amon on our show today. In fact, I was just on her radio show the other week. And for those of you that aren't familiar with her, she is a staunch advocate. She's passionate. She's an engaging speaker, author, and trainer. And her focus is really on improving dignity and quality of care and quality of life for those 1.4 million people who live in our nation's nursing homes. Um, And she is also very devoted to providing families with information so that they can make informed choices and become effective advocates themselves for those that they love. She's worked in over 45 nursing home uh, facilities as a speech and language pathologist, and so she She's seen a lot. So welcome, welcome, Phyllis. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, Lori. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. Well, I'm thrilled to have you have you with us today. It was fun being on your show uh, actually last week. And so um, because you're new to our audience, if you wouldn't mind letting our audience know if you've been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends by dementia. Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, I would say that my journey uh, is similar to yours in a way, although it was my grandmother, and um, I was a teenager, and um, my mother wanted her to come live with us, but I was a teenager, as I said at the time, and my father didn't think that was such a great idea. We had a, a house, but it was small, and so there was a nursing home a few blocks from our home, and we, um, they moved my grandmother in there, and, and my mother was there from morning until evening every day, helping to take care of her. She had Parkinson's, um, and she uh, did have some dementia, as I remember. Um, as I said, I was a teenager, and there was a period of time that my parents went on a two-week vacation, and my sister and I took turns taking care of her to cover the hours that my mother uh, had been taking care of her. You know, I was a high school student. I used to go after school. My sister was older in college. She used to go in the morning. And I just remember that first day I, I walked into that facility and saw her in the lobby. She was such a proud woman that she, when she lived in her apartment, she wouldn't even go down the street with a walker. And there she was just in a, in a horrible situation. Of course, I'm in my 60s. So at 15, that was many years ago, and and nursing homes were very different than they are now. There are some things that I think are similar, and um, it just it just uh, left an indelible mark on my mind and heart. And I helped, as I say, take care of her for a couple of weeks. So <clears throat> I really experienced um, her being in the throes of this uh, this memory loss and this dementia, and how that impacted her physicality. And uh, years later, after I became a speech pathologist, I think the nursing home environment just kept calling at me. You know, I didn't even understand why at first. 
And so I have uh, spent the most of my adult career, and as you say, I've worked in over 45 skilled nursing facilities. I'm also a dementia trainer, practitioner, and manager, so I've, I've certainly specialized in that area because certainly there are so many people being diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia, and um, I think it's one every 65 seconds in this country. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, and it's every three seconds around the world. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And and so, you know, from my experience from my from my experience, you know, we're we're all we all talk about a cure, which is obviously of great importance, but you know, I'm there seeing the care and how the care can be improved upon. So that's the space I'm really coming from. Okay, wonderful. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about attitudes that you've seen towards our our elders, um, including, you know, verbiage that's used, just overall culture uh, in the nursing homes and, and socially as well. Yeah, well, I think in this country especially, because it, um, I'll say as a, as a general culture, because this country is made up of so many different cultures, uh, you know, we don't value our, our elder citizens the way they do in other cultures. Um, you know, other cultures, people that are old were revered. As a matter of fact, my first blog post was called The Wisdom Keepers. I really do believe that these people are the keepers of wisdom. They're a great natural resource. I'm, I'm sure many listeners on your show have experienced, you know, imparting their knowledge or experience to younger people, whether it's in their family or people in their community or other family members, friends or relatives. Um, you know, you don't know what you don't know unless you've lived it, right? And so it's, it's true what you say about the verbiage because um, I remember being 30 years old, which was a while ago. <laughs> I don't know about you, you know. And we would I'm, say, I'm right there help, with right? you. I'm right there with you, so I get it. I just turned 61, so yeah, it's been a while. I'm a, I'm a few years above you, know, above you. I'm 67, but we're same genre, right? So yep. um, yeah, you know, we say at 30 we're over the hill. You know what? What is that? You know, or or um, I think from the time we're young, we hear how old are you? I think old is always kind of reinforced in our culture and in our language. Where in other cultures, they may say, uh, how many years do you have or what year are you in? Um, you know, and then there are other expressions. I'm sure people have heard them, you know, old fart, spring chicken, <laughs> you look good for your age, whatever that is, <laughs> you know, you still have time. You have a smartphone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're, you're past your prime, whatever that is. So I think it's always reinforced in in our culture that when you're older, like uh, and especially if you're no longer working in the in the job, let's say that you worked in your entire life, you know, if you're not like a contributing member of society, people think in the workforce, like you've outlived your usefulness, and that's it's so the antithesis of, in my opinion, what we should be thinking. And I think that translates into the care and treatment that older people in our societies in our society experience. Oh, I I totally agree with you. And we do focus so much on age, and age is a bad thing. And 
Um, I remember before my parents got ill, my dad ended up with brain cancer, my mom with uh, dementia. And I sold real estate and I would always help other families help their loved ones transition. And in my mind, and I look back at this and I just laugh, but old was always 10 years older than my folks because then I was safe and I wasn't going to have to deal with it. (laughs) And then one day my dad, you know, was hospitalized, uh, went to the doctor, was hospitalized immediately for uh, brain cancer and, you know, everything just turned upside down. And, you know, I realized you can't run and hide from this. We have to learn to live graciously alongside it. And I don't think we, I, I agree with you, I don't think we do that that well at all. You know, I have a friend who's um, actually, she was an undergraduate college professor of mine, and we've been friends all these years. And she's about, uh, I think, 11 years Senior to me, see, I was going to say, oh, and I stopped myself. It's, it's conditional. It's conditioned, you know. So she's yep. about 11 years senior to me. And um, she had said something to me once that really gave me tremendous cause for thought. Because in our society in general, you know, there's a, a focus on looking younger, being younger, uh, Botox, you know, whatever kind of... Um, 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 treatment you can have to make yourself look uh, an age that isn't your stated age. I'm being so careful with my words, as you could tell, right? And I <laughs> myself, uh, I talk about it very openly. I had my eyes done and I've had other cosmetic surgery. And um, she said once um, that her grandchildren, she helped take care of her grandchildren. One of her grandchildren had said to her, Uh, Nana, you have a lot of wrinkles. And she said what I thought was just tremendous. And I thought about it. It's a couple of years now. I think about it. I thought about it ever since. She said, I've earned these wrinkles. These wrinkles have a lot to say about the life I've lived and things you can learn from the life I've lived. I thought, wow, isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's beautiful. We shouldn't be afraid of those things because it. You know, we always say people should be authentic and, you know, we're coming of this age of, you know, everybody kind of coming out and being who they are. And yet when it comes to age, we're like, well, no, not, not this group, not this group. And so, you know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny. And um, one of the things I've appreciated going through the whole COVID thing is just even seeing a lot of our stars wearing no makeup or, or doing their own makeup, which isn't how the, the makeup artists do it on TV and, you know, being real. And, and I find that very appealing and very comforting in multiple, multiple levels. And I, and I would love to see that trickle down into our communities as a whole. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, when someone is placed in a nursing home, because there is, for many, this out of sight, out of mind transition. And, um, and, I, and I saw that with my own family, people and, and friends, actually, there were like two camps, one that would ask, you know, how's my mom doing? And they really, really wanted to know. And the other camp wanted to give me permission to not go see her again because they were so uncomfortable with the conversation. And right. I, I was I was amazed at that. So what are you seeing in the culture of our, our nursing homes? Well, I, I, I want to go back to the word that you just used, which is place. And that's mm-hmm. another uh, word that, that kind of irks me, I'll say. 
mm-hmm. because when you put somebody someplace or or place them, or even if you think about placing an object someplace, that that thing or person doesn't have any autonomy. You, you, you are in control of that. And we make so many transitions in our lives from the time we're young to maybe going away to school or then moving in with, you know, a friend or a partner and then maybe getting married and then maybe having a home. I mean, not everybody has the same transitions in life, but then maybe, you know, you're, if you have children, they grow up and maybe you downsize and, and then you're getting older and someone says they're going to put you someplace. And to me, it's, it's, it takes away so much from that person. And I think just that notion alone has a tremendous impact on people in nursing homes. There are, I would say, probably a percentage, but not a large percentage, of people who, who are aware and made that decision. But for the most part, I don't think they have. And, and maybe some of it is because of loss of physical ability, and there is no choice in that matter. But for the most part, even in that case, they, we say people are put someplace. And until the COVID situation, or I'll say other natural disasters, we've had hurricanes and floods, and in the, part of the news cycle becomes what's happened in some nursing homes, and then it passes by. And in a way, the COVID situation is the same. Uh, a lot of talk about nursing homes and people in nursing homes and the news cycle has gone on to some very important issues in our society, but the nursing home situation seems to have gotten lost again. And Mm -hmm. um, I think it's so great that you're having me on so we can talk about this and give people the, you know, realize that this is not a conversation that's over. This is a conversation that we really should continue to have. And, um, People in nursing homes, um, I'm sure you've experienced this uh, with your own family members, uh, they feel a tremendous sense of loss, loss of independence, loss of contact with their family, with their friends. Some people are in places that are far away from where they used to live. Uh, A lot of people don't have opportunities to go out uh, into the community with nursing homes. Some nursing homes do do that. but it's just such a tremendous sadness and loneliness and loss and the importance of having programs and facilities that can bring life to people because it doesn't have to be that life is over. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be thought of that way, in my opinion. These are people, they're just continuing life's journey as they're advancing in years and they're in a different living situation than the one that they had previously. And they're entitled to the same, as you said in the beginning, dignity and respect and quality of life and, and purpose. Um, it shouldn't matter where you're living. That's, that's, that's very, very true. That. No, that's, that's very true. And when I was in uh, real estate, you know, we used to talk about um, transitioning. And people always, no matter who we are, we want to have consideration in our decisions we want to be involved we want to have choice and you know when we transition in our housing I don't care what age or stage it is we all kind of use the same basic platform and that is talking about what meets our needs today what's going to best suit us so it really isn't about 
losing independence, which is what everyone thinks it's about. It's about gaining and maintaining as much independence as possible by making those transitions so you are as well cared for. So, you know, I don't care if it's a a house, a town home, a a memory care assisted living or a nursing home, you're making those decisions based on today's needs and future projections. and, and so, but we don't have those conversations because we're so afraid of, you know, oh, talking about uh, death and dying or getting ill. And, you know, we're all going to die. We're most likely but, all going to get some form of illness and stuff. So it really, to me, is about having a lot of these conversations earlier and, and memory care and, and cognitive um issues is becoming more and more prevalent and it's it's mixing with a lot of um, major medical issues as well and we've got to learn how to work through all that and kind of adjust our attitudes so that we we care better um so great absolutely sorry i'm sorry not to uh, interrupt i'm sorry just thought of something i i kind of didn't want to lose it and it pertains to something you just said earlier which is People too often think about people in nursing homes as they look at them and what they can't do any longer, but it's just what you said. What can people do? There's a lot people can still do, and we should be capitalizing on that. So I just wanted to interject. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no. That's that's fine. I, I think it's an important factor. In fact, I'm going to um, just state something that I, I just found on my computer now. I forgot the, the acronym, but it's called Flick Factors. And it was something I developed when I was in real estate, helping people transition. And the things that everybody looks at that are the same are their finances, um, the, the loss, the independence, the control, the need for comfort, um, for change confidence in the decision, and then what do their kids and friends think? You know, all of those factors come into play in pretty much any decision we make. And um, sometimes losses are good, sometimes they're not. You know, it just depends on the individual situation. So, um, again, I think being able to have an authentic, open conversation about this is about creating the best life for you. This isn't about putting you away, placing you Uh um, yeah, I I agree, and um, it's it's so poignant what you said about people not wanting to have the conversation. I uh, I tell people that um, it's important to plan by choice, not by crisis, because mm-hmm. especially if you have it can happen to you, but especially if you have an older parent, uh, you may receive a phone call, and I've heard this many times. Oh, my parent is in their eighties, their nineties, they're fine, they're great, they're working. And then ultimately what happens, uh, in many cases, you receive a phone call, like you said, you, you know, you, your father developed a brain cancer. I uh, got a, a text message from my daughter a while back that her, her friend's father um, had been diagnosed with cancer and, and had received chemo and um, you know, had difficulty breathing and eating and, and had to be moved to a nursing home. So she contacted me for some advice. And I suggest to people that it's important to get this information up front because when you're in the midst of a crisis, as we all know, and you have to make quick decisions, uh, that's not the best time to make the best decisions. And I tell people when they're in um, when they're in hospitals and they find out that their parent or loved one has to be moved to a, a short-term rehabilitation setting, 
and many times it's in a nursing home or skilled nursing facility. I say you're at the mercy of the glossy marketing brochures or the hospital discharge planners who have have good intentions, but uh, they have their mission. And so yep. I say we really all do plan for these things. I mean, we all, most of us have car insurance. We don't plan on being in a car accident. I bought burial insurance last year. I wasn't planning on being buried right now. But uh, And then we all make, you know, other kinds of arrangements. We get medical insurance uh, because we don't plan on getting ill, but this could happen to us. And so I say it's so important to get this information beforehand so that you know the important information and the questions that you need to ask so that when you ask those questions, if somebody says something and you know the information that doesn't jive with the underlying information, you can make a decision on that or ask a follow-up question or, you know, after you visit a few places, then make a decision based on the answers to the, the questions that you received and the information that you know so that your loved one gets the, the best care possible. Yep, wonderful, wonderful advice. See, one of the things I wanted to ask is, since you've been in so many um, skilled skilled nursing um, situations, what? Um, how do you feel people um, in terms of staff are doing regarding dealing with um, memory issues or cognitive impairment with uh, with their patients? Do you think there's enough training and enough um, compassion and understanding out there, or do you think we still have some work to be done? Oh, great, great question, Lori. Um, I think it, it, it's uh, uneven um, in for many buildings. I think that um, especially assisted living facilities that now have memory care units, because they're so dedicated to that, I, I the ones I've seen um, seem to have more uh, training for staff. Um, the ones I've seen in skilled nursing facilities, I would say there's a lot more work that needs to be done. As a matter of fact, I just um, I, I got my certification for the na- through the National Council of Certified Dementia Practitioners, and um, it's funny that you asked because we hadn't talked about this beforehand. And I just sent out a brochure to a number of people. Uh, because they have two more online classes, and I am able to register people for it. And um, I was telling these people all who were in the industry that I, just my personal belief, that every uh, director of nurses, every director of rehab, and every occupational, physical, and speech therapist should have additional training in dementia care. Um, I don't see that. That hasn't been my experience. Certainly, a certified nurse aides that work on on units that are dedicated to memory care, they have some experience and some training, but I don't think it's nearly enough. I believe that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has uh, has guidelines now for the number of hours of training that people need to receive for memory care. I have to be honest; I don't remember off the top of my head what that is, but whatever it is. It needs to be doubled from my experience, from what I've seen. I can only talk well, about my own, my experience. Yeah. Well, and I think part of the problem, too, is the turnover rate. So they train and then they go. They train and then they go. And so I, I, to me, it has to be incorporated 
um, almost in on a daily basis that that needs to be brought up in the, in, when they're doing their shift changes. And we need to empower staff to have these conversations and, and talk openly and honestly, not only about what's working, but what didn't work. So that somebody else doesn't try that 45 times and that we can learn <laughs> from from one another. And again, with dementia, some days it'll work, sometimes it won't. Um, it, so it doesn't mean that you don't try it again. But um, sometimes there's such great fear in losing a job or being projected as um, not doing the job well, when really some of those people are, are staunch advocates and really, really trying want to learn and I think there's a faster way to do that and I think the conversation doesn't have to take you know it doesn't have to overtake those uh, shift change or logging processes but I think that they can have a huge benefit in just keeping it top of mind because most people in a skilled uh, skilled setting are going to have some type of of cognition issue, not all, but a significant portion. Well, just like when you talk to anybody in assisted living, they will say, you know, they notice probably 80% of, of their clientele, they'll, they'll spot some cognition um, uh, deficits or changes in them. That doesn't mean that they can't function independently, but they, you know, they're noticing some things. And so we need to have these, these open conversations on how it can affect people. And it, and it can affect young people too. You know, we have to get over that misconception as well, that younger people are getting diagnosed with this um, or, or different things can, can come into play with medications or stress, whatever. You, you know, I, um, about a year and a half ago, I did a, um, uh, a training um, at the uh, corporate headquarters of ESPN on caregiving. I'm bringing this up uh, for a reason, not to just say that I did that. Uh, a lot of companies are realizing that there's that that uh, uh, generation of people that are squeezed. It's actually called the sandwich generation. People squeeze between family work responsibilities and uh, caring for an older loved one. And I believe it's that... Um, about 15.7 million adult family uh, caregivers care for someone who has Alzheimer's disease or other dementia, which um, is equivalent to 18.2 billion hours, and that translates to about $217 billion in value to the economy. But the the reason I'm bringing it up is uh, when you said about it affects people of all ages, I'll never forget that this gentleman came up to me very uh, kind of sheepishly at the beginning and asked me quietly if if he should be there. And um, I asked him why he asked me, and he said, well, my wife is uh, just turned 50, and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So there is an, an early onset, and I've seen people even younger than that. So people should be aware that there are situations where you could be younger and still have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or dementia, even though the preponderance of people that have it are, are older, I'll say an older mm-hmm. age, so to speak. Um, I, I think what you said is very important, which is about uh, staff and, and facilities. And I've been advocating this for quite some time. And that's to, if, 
there's this expression of person-centered care, which seems like it would make sense. Obviously, it's, all care should be person-centered. And sometimes it gets lost in the process of the routines of the tasks that people have to do in nursing facilities. And I think that becomes part of the issue with caregivers. Uh, too often, it's about what behavior, what behavior am I seeing and how can I stop it rather than this is a puzzle and how can I solve it? And um, I believe that providers and um, operators, providers, administrators, management, uh, at whatever level, need to invest in the staff and give them the tools and let them know that the person-centered care starts with the staff, that they are an important member of the process. I, I My experience has been that too often, especially certified nurse aides who do the bulk of the work, the lion's share of the backbreaking work, are just thought as you know, people that are needed to deliver care and do tasks uh, in order to make the facility run. But I, I don't, haven't seen so much that they're really valued as people. They have a voice too, and if they're valued as people, then they in turn. I believe, will pass on that value and in their care. They'll have more job satisfaction. Maybe they won't leave as frequently. Maybe there won't be as high a turnover. I tell this story. Uh, I've written about it. I've told it to many people through the years. Uh, many years ago, it was in the early 2000s, I was working in a facility. Um, and this person, uh, this owner, he only owned one then. He now owns quite a number over 100, but that's another conversation. But he used to, um, one day I saw him in the building and he approached me and he asked my name and what I did there. That had never happened to me before. And he introduced himself. He said he was the owner. And we spoke for a few minutes and then he walked down the hallway and I watched him and he stopped and he talked to people, nurses, nurse aides, he knew their names, asked how their mother was, their son's graduation, their vacation, yeah, those kinds of questions. And um, he knew the, the names of the residents as well and stopped and asked them what their concerns were. This a gentleman did rounds in his building on every unit four times a week. Needless to say, the staff was incredibly loyal to him. They felt that he cared about them. And the mm -hmm. care in that building was really um, exemplary because yeah. if somebody cares about you, easier, I think, to care about the next person. That's not saying that CNAs don't have a heart and a lot of people do this work because it's a calling or nurses. But there are many people that uh, there are feelings that develop if you feel that your employer doesn't care about you. And then you become unsatisfied, and that has a lot, in my opinion, to do with turnover. So I think providers should begin to think about that more carefully and what strategies can they use, what message are they giving, and then not say it's the same thing about saying uh, for people in older people in nursing home, it's them over there. It's the same thing. Say, oh, well, those are the staff. Those are those people. No, um, it's, a, it's a community, really. Yeah. I think we have to change our thinking about that as well. Yeah, I loved what you said about the owner because what he was really doing was being authentic. He was modeling the outcomes he wanted. And, and workers workers pick up on that. They feel valued. And so it, it changes everything. Um, you also talked about staff buy-in. 
you know, staff have ideas. They have tons of ideas. And one of the things that companies, I've been reading several articles lately about COVID, and what companies are realizing is maybe they don't need as much middle management as they have because they're finding that the ideas are actually coming from the direct staff, you know, on-the-line staff. And if they empower them to do that, not that you don't need, you know, some middle management positions and things, but just even how the source of, of power is viewed, I hate to even use that word, um, I think is important. You had mentioned the word behavior, and I think a lot of times, you know, it's a common word that's used, and we look at how do we fix that, and a lot of times in um, community settings, the outcome is to fix that by a drug, um, where really right. a behavior is a signal or a reaction, and and they, too, want it fixed, but they want our help to figure out what's triggering it because they can't always communicate. And I think that, you know, when we start training our staff to look for those signals, look for all of the, the outside things that, um, <clears throat> that impress upon us, that make us all react, um, it's much easier and we can get to that fix faster in a much, much healthier way. And then last, I just want to comment on the, on the phrase person-centered, um, because I, I, I truly believe it's overused and under-delivered, and people don't really understand what it means. They think if they have a, a list of things to do, and, and I thought this, that I was being person-centered, but what I, what I really needed to be, what, what my mom wanted, what my dad wanted, what others who I work with want, is they want me to be relationship-based. They don't want me to look at tasks first. They want to want me to look at them first. They want me to engage them as a human being. And that's what I wanted too. But I thought this list was really the ultimate thing to prove that I was giving good care. And I think um, quality of care has to be analyzed a little bit different. And that gets tricky, you know, when we have reviews coming in and red flags on how do we portray good quality of care. And, you know, we're not asking, did you have a conversation with somebody? Did, did you engage? It was like, did they get their medicines? Did you rotate a bed? Or did they get their showers? You know, what did they eat? You know, and it's right. like, oh, my gosh, just think if that's how ev- if everybody dealt with us, how horrible that right. would feel. You know, uh, to I be agree. A- it's- Go ahead. Sorry. So I, I was just going to say to be viewed as a task. And that's where right. the whole issue comes with aging is people, you always hear them say, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to lose my independence, right. you know, and, and that's where all that comes from because of those, those but, dang lists. <laughs> but, right. Um, and you said relationship based, it's task driven. And that mm-hmm. is part of the issue, especially in the skilled nursing facility space, because it's a medical model. Now, I'm not saying that people don't have medical needs and those needs need to be addressed, but the oversight is so incredible um, in terms of looking at each area that needs to be addressed. I recently um, I, I got a certification as an assisted living administrator in California, um, because I'm working with a group as an advisory board member and they thought it was good for me to have it because they're looking at either buying or building or something. And they wanted somebody to have that background or experience. And it, it proves tremendous, has seen tremendous value for me. Um, of course, I know the oversight is, um, is, is very exact, but when I, 
learned about the regulations, and whether it's in California or anywhere else around the country, I'm sure it's similar. Every little thing is is really scrutinized, and that's where the whole task-driven model comes from. And that was only assisted living. I can only imagine what it is in the still nursing facility space because it's a medical model. And um, you're 100% correct. We, we're not looking at the person. I, I, um, I uh, often liken it. I don't want anybody to think I'm comparing an older person to a child because I'm not. I'm, I'm using this as an example, like a metaphor in a way. Um, when you have a child who can express themselves, and as we know, many people with dementia, or as they get older, may have difficulty with expression, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And the child is crying, um, and it could be up to any age, really. Um, you try to solve that, look at it and say, gee, what's the issue? What are they asking for? What are their needs? I mean, how many times do we see a cranky child and hear a parent say, or I know I, I have two adult children, you say, oh, they need a nap, right? But the child doesn't really come and say, I'm, I'm tired, I need a nap. Um, or you, you look at them and say, oh, when they're younger and don't have the words, oh, maybe they're hungry, maybe they're wet, maybe they're cold, maybe they're hot. And the importance of training is to have people, I think, think that way. It's about communication. It's about looking at the person as an individual. Like you said, person-centered, it seems like it would be, but is it really? No, it's person-centered, task-driven instead of person-centered, who is this person and what are their needs? And I think it's about uh, a lot of um, facilities use the word customer service. Well, it's not really about delivering service, in my opinion. I mean, these are just my ideas, that it's really about, so if you think of it in terms of customer satisfaction, you are there in a way to serve that person, in that capacity, that's what you really are there for. And what does that person need or what are their needs that need to be satisfied? And what is my role in helping to achieve that? And if we could get people, I think, to think that way, maybe. But that, I mean, it's a process. It's a learning process. It just doesn't happen because you tell that to people. It takes practice. It takes training. It takes education. And just what you said, it takes an open communication, an open dialogue and starts from the top. Yep. Yeah. It really, it it has to be it has to be modeled at all levels, and we have to empower our employees to be those modelers too, and to give them permission to make mistakes. We have gotten into this perfection society where you know no one can make a mistake. Well, sorry, we all do every day if we <laughs> want to admit it or not. So. Um, <laughs> You know, but with social media, everything is, oh, I'm doing this, and life is so beautiful. And it's just like, you know what? Every day is, is not perfect. It, it just it isn't, and it's not supposed to be, because you can't have a high without a low. It, you know, it's about that yin and that yang and that balance, and, and about being accepting, forgiving, and learning. Learning from what didn't go right. I mean, to me, that's the whole journey of living life is to, you know, get through some of those bumps and have some of those successes. I want to talk about, you know, uh, caregiver fatigue because it happens, you know, with families, it happens with, with staff as well. And you have something called empathy. I am um, both capital P A T H Y. 
uh, self-care. Can you can you talk to uh, to us about that and and about self-kindness and compassion? Because I don't think we're very kind to ourselves. We I think we all have that inner critic with baseball bat that works us over some days. <laughs> I know I do. I can tell you that. Um, it came from uh, that word empathy. Uh, as a, Empathy is feeling for another person, right? Putting yourself in, in, in another person's shoes. And um, empathy is um, caring for yourself. And I, I developed it thinking about um, caregivers originally, that they are squeezed, they are fatigued, they are frustrated, they're tired, they're, um, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy um, devoting that much time uh, to somebody who has a tremendous needs and, um, and then maintaining your own um, responsibilities for family or work. Uh, the other thing I, I don't think people realize is that um, when they take on that responsibility that it's, and you could probably uh, address this, Lori, that uh, that's only the beginning. Um, it doesn't stay that way. Uh, the, the needs of the person certainly increases um, and it becomes more, I'll say, um, more um, um more requiring of your time and your, and then energy and, and all of that. And so, yeah, I thought about it so many times from, um, from flying on a plane. Of course, a lot of us aren't flying on planes anymore (laughs) or we haven't for a while, but um, you know, when you're in a plane uh, and you're hearing the emergency procedures, what do they, what do they always say? Um, That um, put the mask on yourself first. Um, before you try and help the next person because unless you can have strength to take care of the next person and you ha- unless you have uh, strength for yourself. And so um, self-care, self-kindness, and self-compassion is, is so important. There are many programs out there that talk about it, uh, different ways of viewing it. Um, you know, resilience the term resilience is is really defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and and the ability to spring back into shape um and it it can be learned um, so i i uh termed i termed uh, came up with this term empathy i actually trademarked the word and um i encourage people and i believe i'm going to be writing an ebook on it uh, to use different strategies uh, that they uh, need so that they can boost themselves up, especially when they're feeling most fatigued and most stressed. And interestingly enough, during this period of time with COVID, I've, I've been w- working in some facilities. I've also uh, spoken to many staff members because wearing these masks and these shields and these gowns, is, it can be very debilitating. People have even asked me, what suggestions can you give me? So it doesn't matter whether it's a caregiver, uh, like you said, in a building, caring for uh, residents, or if it's during this time when it's been exacerbated because you have to wear these shields and this mask and it's debilitating, or you're a caregiver for an older loved one, or just really uh, stressed by your the uh, responsibilities you have in life, even if you're not caring for an older person. 
And what can you do to boost yourself up, whether it's uh, intermittent breathing throughout the day or, or a meditation in the morning or statements of gratitude? I mean, there are different ways you can go about it, but it's so important. I use them. And I find that it helps me just uh, at the beginning of the day, even to say, and it doesn't have to be some fantastic thing. It could be um, something simple like, um, you know, that I had some, I, I'm going to decided to have some ice cream today. And I'm very thankful for that. It, it puts you in a different frame of mind. Uh, you know, my daughter, she has a, a six and a half year old and two um, uh, twin girls who just turned four a few weeks ago. So I spoke to her about these things, too. She's working from home, and she's responsible for taking care of them and educating them at the same time. People are really struggling with this. And mm-hmm. she's been talking to me about it. And so I gave her some tips also, even if it's five minutes twice a day, um, just to do some deep breathing or put on your earphones and listen to a song that you love uh, to rejuvenate yourself. Anything you can do to rejuvenate yourself. Um, Five minutes, just close your eyes and be mindful, be present where you are, how you're feeling. All of these um, techniques are very helpful in self-care and self-kindness and self-compassion. I talk about it like giving yourself a hug. How often do we have friends or relatives uh, that are going through a hard time and we put our arm around them? Well, maybe not now because we're social distancing, but you know what I mean. You put your arm around them or hug them and or a gentle touch and that seems to reassure the other person. Well, but we don't think about hugging ourselves in a way virtually. You know, what can we do to make ourselves feel better so that we can, in turn will have strength to care for the next person? I, I'm sure, Lori, when you were caring for your mom, you had moments or periods of time when it was difficult, correct? Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. There would be time, And, you know, I had this... Um, I, I wore my superwoman cape and I didn't want anyone to see that. <laughs> you know, I was one of those people that didn't give up anything. I just kept taking more stuff on. And then I would wait till my family left the house and I would go down in the basement and I would scream at the top of my lungs and I would just go, God, you have to help me. I can't do this anymore. But I didn't want anyone else to see that, which was a huge, huge mistake. Cause it's like living a double life, you know, and right. people, People aren't going to help when they think you've got it all under control. You know, when you're doing the separate wife smile and life is peachy you know, <laughs> and things. And so, and I, and I hear so many care partners get upset, both, both staff and family. No, you know, no one's helping. Well, you're not asking for help. In fact, you're not even showing that you need help. You look like you're doing one kick butt job there and no one wants to get in your way. <laughs> And so we don't even realize that we're part of the problem. So one of the things that I learned to do um, in breathing, and I would do it 11, a minimum of 11 times, and you can do this anytime during the day, but I would take 11 deep breaths in, and on my deep breaths, what I learned to say and what I learned to ask was that please give me whatever I need in this moment to be my best. Mm. And, I, and I didn't ask for specific things because I've learned as I've gotten older that what I think is best isn't always best or there, right. are, there are better ways to do something. So I didn't want to rely on my knowledge. And so I would just put that out to God in the universe. Please give me whatever I need 
to be calm and be my best and to do my best in this moment. And on my exhale, I would literally say, I want all the toxins in my mind, body, and soul to leave. So I was given that inner critic a boot, I, aches and pains, you know, all of those different things that, that kind of take us over. And what I found is even just the deep breathing, you know, there's studies that have shown that it changes our chemical body, but I was re-messaging uh, myself during absolutely. that. And, and it, huge difference, huge difference for me. Yeah. And, and you um, and use that throughout your life. Yeah, no, I have said things like, um, also, like you said, there there are many different techniques. Um, uh, there's a four seven eight technique, alternate nostril breathing. Many. I love the what you know the, what you what you said. You said to yourself, there's also um, another one. It's like, may I be happy? May I be safe? Um, you know, may I may I be able to get through this difficult time? Um, mm-hmm. And if and if you um you know you can re you can repeat it several times and it becomes like a mantra and it has a yep. rhythm to it um and that is soothing in and of itself i people sometimes react to these things and say oh it's like ooh you know we're talking about like supernatural stuff but we're really not it's very evidence based uh people could yep. look up how this it benefits them and if if you're feeling better Certainly, it can benefit the person that you're you're caring for, and your family, and your work. Uh, people lose a lot of productivity at work, um, and that's why I believe a lot of employers are having um, uh, presentations and training on caregiving. They a lot of employee assistance programs are offering services to caregivers because they mm-hmm. realize how important this is, and, and people are really struggling with this. I. I I've thought about something you said because it's about what are we projecting to other people? We often don't think that, right? Because we're so wrapped yep. up in what, how we feel and what we're thinking. And I remember that many years ago, um, I, I was divorced. And so I was a single parent for many years. And my son, he's four years younger than my daughter. And sometimes when I'd be struggling and doing things and I'd say, you're not even offering to help me. He'd say, well, you didn't look like you needed any. You didn't ask for any. Yeah. And it, it, it struck me when you said that because I think we all do that. Um, because, yeah. yeah, especially as women, we want to somehow prove that we can do it all. And that's a, uh, a misconception. It's not a sign of weakness. I realize it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength of character to know, you know, where your your capability ends and what you need to help, you know, for help so that you can get through whatever situation it is. There's nothing bad or wrong or should be looked at negatively. It's it's actually a sign of strength of character. It says, you know, I know I know what I'm capable of and I know where I need some help because none of us are really superhuman. No. Well, and it takes the resentment out, you know, I used to, I was one of those uh, uh, siblings that was upset with her, her, you know, with my brothers. You know, why weren't they more like me? Why weren't they stepping up? Why? And it's just like, and I came to this realization, which sounds just asinine that I even had to come to a realization over this, but <laughs> that we're, we're, we're all different. We all have our own journeys. I'm not responsible right. for their outcomes. And they are still valid 
in the relationship with my parents, however they show up, as long as, as long as it's not harming them. And yet I wanted more of them and that's not my place. And once I let go of that, I had a lot more energy. I had a lot more time to be the person I wanted to be with them, you know? And, and I think sometimes we get so into that cycle of trying to force others to be something that maybe they just can't be for whatever reasons, right or wrong. It doesn't make any difference. It's just not their journey. And maybe they're not doing that is a lesson for me to become a better Mm -hmm. person in forgiveness and acceptance, you know, and we never, we don't look inward. It's, you know, we're pretty good at blaming the other guys instead of taking a look look inside. Um, We only have about uh, three minutes left here. I can't, the time just uh, has flown by with you, Phyllis. I want to, you know, mention to our audience that you also have a radio show. And if you want to talk um, about Voices of Elder Care Advocacy uh, and, and let them know how they can find you there, that would be wonderful. Oh, sure. Thanks, Lori. So the show is called Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. It's on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Uh, we are live on Mondays. So we have a show today, uh, 5 o'clock Eastern, 2 o'clock Pacific, but it also is on all the podcast platforms, so it lives on as a podcast. People can, whatever podcast platform is their favorite, they can, uh, they can listen to it there. I am going to be transitioning the show to a podcast, actually. It will remain on the uh, Voice America Empowerment Channel, but it will just be a, uh, a podcast type of show. And we actually may be changing the name, but I'm not quite sure about that. We're going to send out a press release about it. Um, but I also wanted to let your listeners know if anybody wanted to reach me, they could reach me at Phyllis at Phyllis, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S, Amen, A-Y-M-A-N, Associates.com. My blogs are there. People can book an appointment with me, and a variety of the presentations that I have are there. Um, and I'd be happy to um, respond to any questions or any comments. That would be really wonderful. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time with us today. It's always a fun conversation with you, and we'll have to have you back on again. And let us know how things uh, transition there with the radio show and everything else that you're doing. Wish you the best of luck. And, you know, keep up the excellent work in in helping shifting our dementia care culture. As Phyllis said, uh, contact information is on the radio site. It's on the blog. She's easy to find. If you forget, just Google Phyllis Amon and you you will find her as well. So, again, thank you for your time, Phyllis. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Lori. I really appreciated it. Great. In wrapping up, folks, I just want to um, remind people that you can go to Coral Health and you can download Music First or Coral Faith free during COVID. So again, go to Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O Health, and then look at Music First or Coral Faith. They're great apps. Won't cost you a thing, and you love the music. And again, Coral Faith has a, a variety of uh, religious, um, oh, from songs and scriptures, all kinds of different things there. So check them out. And for us here at Alzheimer's Speaks, uh, just go to our main website, Alzheimer's Plural Speaks Plural 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com and uh, check out our projects and initiatives page. Till next time, be safe. Love you all. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.